my lord and gentlemen. Countries of doubt. Hello and welcome to the Centuries of Sound Radio podcast. This one's from November 2019, features Tony Barnfield and concerns the year 1908. Get these radio podcasts a year early, as well as a host of other benefits, for just $5 per month by coming to patreon.com slash centuriesofsound. This show can only survive with your help. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Centuries of Sound, the show where we use archive audio to travel back to an individual year. My name is James Errington, and today I'm joined by... Tony Barnfield. And we've just heard Orchestra Goldberg with Kleftico Vachico. That's, uh, what, what kind of thing would you say that is? Well, it sounded like a lot of Cossack, Cossacks dancing around, I would think, from mm. uh, the Soviet end of things. Yeah, so that's uh, some early klezma. Very early klezma from a compilation of the earliest klezma recordings. Uh But it was actually recorded in Istanbul. 
Oh. So, um, but yeah, you, you're right for the, that long introduction. We have, uh, it's a doina, so that's found in klezmer and Balkan music uh-huh. um, as a cornet. And then we had a uh, Romanian, Jewish, Bessarabian dance tune, so covering all the bases there. Yes. Um, and that, that particular tune was later uh, reused by the original Dixieland jazz band in their 1920 recording, Palestina. Oh, so, um, the year we're, we're travelling to this time is the year 1908, so the ancient history of recorded sound still, but uh, 30 years in as far as this programme is concerned, so uh, not quite so ancient for us. <laughs> um, so, what, what, what can you tell us about the music of uh, 1908, of your impressions of it, do you think? Well, I mean, uh, I'm 70, uh, which is a few, a uh, couple of decades more than yourself. Oh, yeah, of course. And, and um, I certainly remember quite a few of things from this this sort of era that would have been about mm, about a decade before my parents were born, and clearly mm-hmm. they grew up to those sort of sounds. And along with nursery rhymes, um, there were a lot of um, long-standing tunes from this sort of era. I mean, I remember the one who broke the bank at Monte Carlo. Mm. Um, parents sang to one, you know, as a child. Mm. Uh, and so there's a sort of heritage there. Mm. The uh, Great American Songbook era, I think they, they say it starts in the 20s. Mm. But listening to, um, listening to music from this era, as I do, it's... Uh, there's so many familiar tunes. Quite a surprise how many familiar tunes I'm hearing. Well, they mentioned Russia and, uh, of course, um, a Russian emigre, uh, Irving Berlin, he changed his name to, was active at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have. Uh, I have a recording of him singing a song, not from this year, from uh, 1911, I think, Yes, coming up. Of course, the musical genre, perhaps, that will be most associated with this time would be ragtime. I would say, um, if you were, if you were a filmmaker making a film about the uh, Edwardian era or the uh, uh, Progressive era, I believe they call it in the USA, you would use uh, ragtime music usually, and uh, we do have some examples of ragtime music and something uh, composed by Scott Joplin himself. Well, I remember him coming back very much in the nineteen seventies, mm. very curiously um, through. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but the Royal Ballet actually. Oh, uh, right. did something based on ragtime wow. and used Scott Joplin's music and it was all over the place. The Entertainer being the most popular. Oh, The Entertainer and the Maple Leaf Rag mm-hmm. um, at the time was the biggest hit. We think of ragtime as being kind of the piano-based form, mm. um, but there are very little or no recordings, in fact, of piano ragtime. <laughs> uh, the ragtime music, that you have plenty of recordings of, is uh, usually played by a band um, and it's it's kind of a one step on from military marching bands of the uh, John Philip Sousa variety. Mm. So this is the uh, Zonophone Concert Band. Um, the Zonophone is a record label, and um, every record label's got their own house band. And uh, it's uh, The Smiler, which is uh, not one of Scott Joplin's better-known rags, but it's the one from this year that was a big hit in this year. <laughs> Yeah. 
So that was the Smiler, which was a uh, Scott Joplin rag. Two different versions there. The first one was by the uh, Zonophone concert band, and the second one there was by Mr. Vess L. Osman. So are you aware of the works of uh, Mr. Vessel Osman? Not at all. So <laughs> Vessel Osman was one of the biggest recording stars of this time, and uh, he was a, a virtuoso banjo player. Um, and he played the banjo in a, a style which apparently is not, not the percussion style it's used now, but as a, as a lead instrument. Um, that, was, that was how the banjo was mainly used at the time. And, uh, yeah, I think he's an amazing, amazing player of the banjo um but they didn't quite translate across to jazz a bit later so um it's kind of forgotten that the banjo was such an important instrument at this time i'm quite impressed by the the quality of sound that comes across at this time uh, presumably it's all on cylinder mostly on cylinder still um the reason it's mostly on cylinder is because there's an amazing cylinder archive run by the university of california santa barbara which you can find all of these recordings at um, but there are many disc recordings now. There are, uh, it's uh, open source uh, technology uh, disc recording at this point because Emil Berliner has, by a series of mis- misfortunes, lost the patent. So there are many different uh, record companies m- operating at this time. So the first one was by the Zonophone concert band, so that would be on the Zonophone label, which would be a disc label. Um, and actually, no, the Vessel Osman, that's uh, indestructible. Indestructible are uh, uh, also records, I believe. Um, although that might be the Edison Indestructible Cylinder. I will go and have a look at what that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, Quite an era. Okay, so apart from ragtime, what else is going on in the year uh, 1908? We have very little in the way of recordings from the UK for most of these, but this time it's a bit different. We can... Uh, have a listen to let's see uh maybe four or five different uh, let's say four recordings from the uk okay um so it's the era of the music hall what what can you tell me about the the music hall as an institution well they were i know that uh, for instance the palace theater where um harry potter is currently playing in london opened as the royal i think it was the royal palace of varieties mm. that was the great feeling then wasn't it before vaudeville really um which was very much an american thing that arrived here but we were very much for variety weren't we and we still have a royal variety performance every year mm-hmm. so that i think that, that marked out and there were people i mean my parents told me about people like uh, vesta tilly and george roby and i think okay. they were probably active at this time yeah Yes, we will be hearing uh, one of those, right. at least. Musical didn't really have the comedy sketches. They had more just uh, songs. I think that was the, the difference between Musical and Variety. Is that is that right? Yes, my... and, and they were sort of reasonably cheeky songs, weren't they? Mm. I mean, the, the classic musical performer very much later on in, I suppose, the 1940s to 60s uh, was Max Miller, and he really made that uh, rude uh, song, uh, very popular indeed, but they were certainly around at this time. Okay, yeah, it's a, there's a, quite a lot of recordings of uh, different musical artists right now. This one, um, he's an international musical artist, so maybe he's not very representative. It's uh, Mr. Harry Lauder. Oh, yes. Are you familiar with Mr. Harry Lauder? Uh, um, um, <laughs> a real Scot he was, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. It's... Um, he was described by Sir Winston Churchill as Scotland's greatest ever ambassador. <laughs> there you are. I wonder. 
Well, uh, so let's uh, let's have a listen to Harry. This is uh, Hey Donald, which I, I, I'm familiar with the later version of this. Let's say that. <laughs> hey Donald, sung by Harry Lauder, Edison Records. <laughs> In the merry month of May That a bony wee lass I met one day And all the language she could say <laughs> Was Donald Dinny Miss me Hug me, tug me as you please Watch and mind you Dinny squeeze When you think that nobody sees us Donald, come and kiss me Hi Donald, oh Donald Think upon your vow Donald, in among the bloomin' heather Where you vow to loom me Hi Donald, oh Donald Think upon your vow Donald, in among the bloomin' heather Where you vow to loom me <laughs> Lie in the middle of the do-die that nicht at the foot of the stair, blethering there like any other pair. I kissed her till her gums were sore. <laughs> Said she, you're misbehaving. When I tickled her, she said that flash. Then she gave me such a bash. And she said, your whiskers needs a washer, else they're needing shaving. Hi, Donald. Oh, Donald. Think upon your vow. Donald, in among the bloomin' heather where you about hello me. Hi, Donald. Oh, Donald, think upon your vow. Donald, in among the bloomin' heather where you vote hello me. Lie down, do them die. Mind I'm telling some of you chaps, <laughs> yon's the place to take your bonny lassie among the bloomin' heather. <laughs> So that was uh, Harry Lauder with Hey Donald, and it sounds very much like a, a later famous Scottish song. Yes, I mean, I, I remember Andy Stewart having quite a big hit in, I think, the 1960s probably, with Donald Wears Your Trousers, and it's that same Donald mm. that uh, is in both songs. Uh, it's without the D in this mm. version for some reason. And, uh, of course, um, <laughs> uh, the, the logic of Wears Your Trousers because, uh, of course, he's wearing a kilt. Oh, of course. Well, I never made that connection before. <laughs> that's, that's, that's why. Yes. Okay. Well, it was uh, number four in the UK when it was re-released, the Andy Stewart recording in uh, 1989, apparently. Wow. I remember it being uh, not played on top of the pops. <laughs> <laughs> Very conspicuously mentioned in the countdown, but not played. <laughs> not surprised. So uh, Harry Lauder, for anyone who doesn't know, he's a Scottish singer and comedian. He was popular in musical and in vaudeville and uh, internationally. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, Scotland's greatest ever ambassador, according to Churchill. And uh, by 1911, he'd become the highest paid performer in the world. Gosh. And he was the first British artist to sell a million records. So uh, there you go. Very well-known mm. performer. Um, next, we have uh, two uh, two people uh, performing a sketch. It's Winifred Hare and Percy Clifton. Right. And um, I'm afraid I have found out very little about either of these. Um, Winifred Hare, I found out, was an actress and singer and a popular pant principal 
boy in pantomimes. Right. Percy Clifton, I have uh, searched and found nothing about this man. <laughs> so uh, let's uh, let's have a listen to uh, Winifred and Percy. Come by Miss Winifred Harbour and Mr. Percy Clifton. Edison Records. Oh, dear, oh, dear, whatever shall I do? The place is simply flooded, and that plumber hasn't turned up yet. Good gracious, and now the water's coming through the ceiling. Ah, there he is at last. Good morning, Mom. Is this number eight Angel Street? Yes, it is. Are you the plumber? Yes, I'm the plumber right enough, but is this number eight Angel Street? Oh, yes, do be quick. The place is simply flooded. Ah, that's a bad job, Mom. But is this number eight Angel Street when there's a pipe burst? Of course it is. Oh, because, you see, there's another Angel Street at Poplar, and I didn't know as how it might have been there. Oh, come in and get to work at once. All right, Mom. There, look. Every room in the house is absolutely ruined. Yes, it is a bit damp, isn't it? I'm afraid you'll have to have new paper. Well, Mom, where is the pipe that's bust? Upstairs, the one leading to the system. Well, supposing we go up and have a look at it. I, I, I say, Mom, you'll excuse me. Is that 12 o'clock striking? It is. Well, it's my dinner hour, so I'll pop off. I'll be back at one. Good heavens, you can't leave the place like this. Excuse me, Mom, I'm a union man, and the union says as how the British workmen must have one hour for dinner. But the place is already swamped. Can't help that, Mom. Orders is orders. Oh, please, say, and I'll pay for your dinner hour. All right, Mom. I don't mind obliging you this time. Oh, thank you. Come along and bring your tools. Well, I ain't brought any tools, Mom. What? You mean to say a plumber comes to work without bringing any tools? Well, you see, my mate's fetching them along. But I say, have you got a saw? Yes. Right out. Have you got any pinches? Yes. That's good. Have you got a bit of oop iron? I think so. Well, then, we can get to work. Well, do hurry up. I say, you pardon me, Mom, but have you got such a thing as a plum? Gracious me, I haven't any fruit in the house. I don't mean that sort of plum. I mean a plum, Bob. I never heard of such a thing. Well, now, how do you expect me to lay them pipes without a plum? The old thing's ridiculous. I'm afraid you'll have to wait till I've had me dinner. Then my mate will turn up with the tools. Oh, but what's to become of the house? Well, I'll tell you what to do in the meantime, Mom. Get a lump of rag and find the hole in the pipe. Then wrap the rag round tight and hold it there till I come back. I shan't be long, Mom. Good morning. Uh, okay, a bit of uh, musical comedy there from uh, Winifred Hare and um, Percy, Clifton. Percy Clifton. Percy Clifton, that's it. Uh, have you been able to find out any more about these two? Well, people may well remember an actress called Doris Hare. Mm-hmm. She um, played, for instance, uh, Mrs Butler in On the Buses. She lived to the age of 95, only died about 20 years ago, and her sister was Winifred Hare. In fact, she had okay. uh, several siblings, um, I think five or six, but uh, Winifred Hare was the sister of Doris Hare. And listening to that, it was very reminiscent of uh, a huge, uh, hugely successful radio series during the Second World War uh, called Itmar, It's That Man Again. Um, and uh, you had all sorts of characters coming in, and that plumber sounded just like a moment in one of those programmes. Okay. I think you can... It wasn't laugh-out-loud hilarious, but you could see where the humour was in there, unlike lots of comedy from this time, mm. I'd say. I don't think Itmar was that funny, but it was just the repetition of um, catchphrases and things like that that uh, the radio certainly fostered and grew. Um, can I Do You Now, sir, for instance, was... One of the phrases of Mrs. Mop was a character. Okay. Uh, but we're talking there of the 1940s. So interesting how uh, during my parents' lifetime, certainly, um, that had changed. They grew up in the 1910s and 
served in the war and so on. And those were very morale-boosting programmes and clearly owe a lot to this sort of period of music hall. Okay. well, talking about connections between the early musical era and the uh, uh, interwar years, uh, here is uh, George Formby. Ah. That's George Formby Sr. Daddy, uh, yes. uh, The father of uh, the George Formby that you may be more familiar with. Mm. And uh, also a very famous person in his day. So this is George Formby Sr. with John Willie. Come on. I'm a man that's fond of seeing life on my wife, by the way. She said to me, John Willie, you shall have a holiday. She took me up to London that I could let me see. And when we arrived at St. Pancake, my wife, she said to me, John Willie, come on, man, you don't get the noise. A lady came to me and said, Have we not met before? My wife said, Miss, how dare you that my husband's all be gone? You know it's mine, I found it first. John Willie, come on. He took me by the hand into the picture gallery. I saw a champion picture there, it fairly tickled me. It was a woman in the sea with long hair on her head. I was getting interested when my wife turned round and said, Young Willie, come on. That picture makes you stare. It's only Venus rising from the sea, so don't stand there. I couldn't take my eyes off it when the wife she shouted, John, tide's coming in, it's not going out. John Willie, come on. I went in, madam, to Swordwax workshop, and it was grand. And there we saw all waxwork kings and queens all shaking hands. There was Mary, Queen of Slops, and Queen Elizabeth, you see. And the rather took my fancy when my wife said to me, Young Willie, come on, love. It's closing time, you see. The light went out, and all was dark and quiet as the sea. I'm turning round to my surprise. I found my wife was gone, and I'm sure I heard Queen Elizabeth say, John Willie, come on. You're listening to Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio, and we've just heard George Formby Sr with uh, John Willie Come On. Um, so what did you make of uh, the senior George Formby? Sounded quite a lot like his son, I think. N- not that, no, quite dissimilar. Um, interestingly, um, Formby was not the family name. Oh, really? It was okay. Booth. But they were from Formby, is that right? Um, 
I'm not sure Possibly. where that name. He, his nickname, uh, George Formby Senior, was the Wigan Nightingale. Oh, so probably obviously that's Wigan, where they came from. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he actually died um, senior um, at the age of 45 in 1921. Mm, and young. at the time of that recording, George Formby Junior was four years old. Oh wow! <laughs> but uh, he he picked up his father's act and yeah. uh, took over. Um, I think uh, he died from uh, the scene. George Formby Senior died from tuberculosis, and he had that cough, mm. which was part of his tuberculosis. Yes. And he kind of incorporated that into his acts, didn't he? Yeah. Um, so kind of a sad story. Lots of lots of these uh, early musical performers have very sad stories indeed. Um, we don't have Billy Williams this week. That's the saddest one <laughs> of all. Mm. Um, and uh, okay, the one one aspect of musical we haven't really covered yet is uh, the. Uh, Male impersonators, we can call them. Is there another word? Uh, I guess these days you call them drag kings. <laughs> they wouldn't really think of themselves in those terms, quite possibly. Um, women who would dress up as uh, gentlemen mm. on stage and uh, do acts where they would pretend to be gentlemen. And uh, the most famous of all being... It's a Vesta Tilly. Oh, right, yes. Vesta Tilly. Although Vesta Tilly was not the first Vesta. There was Vesta Victoria, who was around 10 years before Vesta Tilly, mm. I've uh, realised. Um, and I'm, I'm familiar with Vesta Tilly because Vesta Tilly, uh, as I am, is from Worcester. Um, I went to high school in Worcester. There's the Vesta Tilly Centre there. Um, so uh, what, what, what do you know about Vesta Tilly? Well, certainly that, that whole thing of dressing up was um, very akin to the, the principal boy in pantomime. And pantomime oh, was yes. heavily um, appearing. I mean, all across London, there were empires going right back to the 1910s, certainly. So there probably were quite a few of them around. There's a lot of theatre building at this sort of time, um, especially because oh. the new buildings had electricity and so on. Uh, starting with the Strand Theatre, I think it was, um, not the Strand Theatre, the Savoy Theatre in the Strand was the first to have electricity about 1881. Um, and there were a lot of building of uh, the London Coliseum was built in this era, a little bit after the year we're talking about. Uh, the Palace Theatre I mentioned earlier, um, and that was the Palace Theatre of Varieties. That's what they were, almost predating Music Hall itself. Okay, great. Um, so you can imagine one of those places and uh, Vesta Tilly getting on stage with uh, a very elegant suit and a cigarette in a holder and a top hat and, <laughs> and, and singing this. Following a fellow with a face like me, done by Miss Vesta Tilly, Edison Records. <laughs> Like me. For years I've 
dined and supped and wined at the Carlton Ritz on all days. And what I eat but fish or meat is a choice of everybody's. The rarest wine is always mine. You see, I'm rather dainty. But what I've heard has just occurred. And it makes me feel quite fainty. And it's really dash annoying. He was seen one day, you know, by my papa in a four-ale bar with cold peace pudding in a torn-up star next day. Lord Kay and his grace, the Duke of Sea, they each enjoy a Savoy through following a fellow with a face like me. So that was uh, Vesta Tilly, a famous musical star. There are a few others who uh, were known for cross-dressing at that time. Uh, Bessie Bellwood, Ella Shields, Hetty King is a name I remember, and Millie Hilton. Uh, another lady here, uh, Fanny Robina. Um, so uh, it was certainly not uh, exclusive to Vesta Tilly. Mm. Um, one of her most famous songs, which certainly I know, um, and that was uh, Burlington Bertie. Burlington yeah, Bertie, I rose at 4.30, mm-hmm. and so on. Tunes, you know, words I, I remember from, from childhood. It's strange to me a little that this was mainstream entertainment, this kind of cross-dressing. It was not thought scandalous at all at the time, or, or was it? I, don't, I wouldn't think so. Um, and I do think that that whole thing of pantomime was very akin to music okay. hall. And that that yeah. excuses it, James. It does, yes. That's uh, you wouldn't think that's scandalous having a pantomime dame or anything. So maybe thinking about it in the, on, along the same lines. And her father, Vestatilli's father, was uh, an actor, and he propelled her into show business, and indeed okay. wrote many of her songs. Okay, and she had a very respectable marriage later on. So yep, her uh, father was, uh, I think, knighted or something for his uh, war effort in the First World War. Okay, very uh, very establishment and respectable. Mm. Um, let's uh, cross the Atlantic Ocean to the equivalent in uh, the USA, which is uh, vaudeville. We're in the, the kind of period where um, minstrel shows are giving way to vaudeville and Tim Pan Alley now. And uh, it, it's a good thing that that's happened because uh, <laughs> uh, there's so much music from the minstrel show era, which I uh, unfortunately uh, can't play um, because it's... However good it is, it's quite often very racist indeed. Um, but the vaudeville era is uh, thankfully not not quite as bad, <laughs> although there are moments. Um, amazing, actually, to think on that line. There was the, it was called blackface. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entertainers who dressed up as minstrels and going right into um, again going back to my childhood in the nineteen fifties and sixties, you had the George Mitchell minstrels mm-hmm. were all using the blackface technique on primetime Saturday night television. I think the uh, it was only cancelled in 1978. It's the year before I was born. Oh. So, yes, <laughs> I think in America it was uh, unacceptable a good 30 years earlier. Yes. <laughs> but uh, we like to keep our traditions a bit longer, perhaps. Mm. Um, but, yeah, this is a, a vaudeville routine with the word minstrel in the title, um, but there isn't much in the way of minstrelry in it, thankfully. Um, but it's... Uh, a performer called uh, Murray K. Hill, who I, I really don't know much about, but he recorded a series of cylinders over these three or four years, which are very good kind of uh, rapid-fire 
um, comedy performances, which kind of they're like early, uh, like a bit like Groucho Marx or a bit like Bob Hope, mm-hmm. with rapid fire delivery of jokes. So this is uh, Murray K. Hill with a Stranded Minstrel Man. This show started out from a little town on the B&O Railroad. We played all the small towns along the B&O Railroad. I guess we must have traveled over the B&O Railroad about 150 times. We traveled over the B&O Railroad so much the B&O Railroad kicked and said we'd have to quit. We're wearing out the ties. Uh, We're wearing out the ties all right enough. The manager had one bad habit, never wanted to pay salaries. Salary day came every now and then. Principally then, seldom now. And always never, till here I am busted. But I'll never forget the town this show started out from. They had a state fair going on in the town. I looked all over the town trying to find a place for the troops to stable, but everything was full in the town, including myself and about two-thirds of the population. At last, a friend told me, though, he says there's a hotel inside the fairgrounds called the Inside Inn. Called the Inside Inn because the Inside Inn's inside of the fairgrounds. I walked inside the fairgrounds, inside the Inside Inn, up to the desk of the Inside Inn, says to the clerk of the Inside Inn, is the proprietor of the Inside Inn in? Says, no, the proprietor of the inside in is not inside of the inside in. Says, why is the proprietor of the inside in not inside of the inside in? Says, well, I'll tell you. He's been riding around in the merry-go-round, made him seasick. He's outside by the inside because he can't keep his inside in, letting his inside out, outside of the inside in. I'm going to try and sing another little thing now. A little thing entitled, When Kate and I Were Coming Through the Pie. Excuse me, Through the Ride. So that was Mr. Murray Cahill, quite a funny uh, vaudeville entertainer from this time who made quite a few cylinders as well, um, who seems to have faded into history, but I, I wish he hadn't, because he seems quite interesting guy. Another chap who uh, didn't use his own name, he was really Joseph Tunnicliffe Pope Jr. Oh, great. OK, we know some more about him. What yes, and me? he seemed to hop around the, uh, I, I, I would say record companies, but the recording companies. Um, he got his first contract for Edison Records in August 1907, um, and uh, that was Edison we heard just then. He moved over to uh, Victor, of course, which became RCA Victor later on in 1909. And then he moved to Columbia in uh, 1911 um, and also worked at one time for the Indestructible Record Company. Mm. Wonderful names. The Indestructible Record Company is one of my favourites. They, uh, their house band, they have, they have the uh, Indestructible Concert Band, which is, <laughs> which is good. Even better, however, uh, they have the Indestructible Military Band, right. who uh, are disappointing to listen to, what can I say? <laughs> they can never live up to that name. And perhaps not too indestructible in wartime. No, no. Well, they don't sound it. They're just a normal marching band, <laughs> and, uh, I'm sorry to say. Um, in the in the world of vaudeville, we also have uh, Tin Pan Alley down the road, and uh, pumping out the hits at this point. And uh, this is one of the big hits of the year. Written by the uh, the married vaudeville team of uh, Nora Bays and Jack Norworth, hmm. who uh, were, were uh, very popular on vaudeville and wrote a lot of Tim Panelli songs. And you might be familiar with this one. It's called Shine On Harvest Moon. Yes. Night was mighty dark so you could hardly see For the moon refused to shine Sitting underneath a willow tree For love they pine Little maid was kind of afraid of darkness So she says I guess I'll go Boy began to sigh Looked up at the sky Told the moon his little tale of woe Oh, shine on 
Well, you better embrace these golden opportunities, cause the atmosphere will soon be very chilly. I never thought of that. Oh, please, Mr. Moon, come out and shine, cause you know that snow time ain't no time to So that was Ada Jones and Billy Murray with Shine on Harvest Moon, one of the biggest hits of uh, 1908. And it lives to today. It's been recorded right the way through the 20th century, particularly from 1931 onwards. Mm. And by uh, Laurel and Hardy, you were saying? Yeah, uh, actually I found that it was done in uh, The Trail of the Lonesome Pine, but originally in their 1939 film, The Flying Deuces, um, the Cordettes, who I was listening to on a programme here on this station the other day. Um, all sorts of names. Coleman Hawkins performed it with Ben Webster. Um, big names, these are Teresa Brewer in the uh, late 50s, Rosemary Clooney, Bing Crosby, um, The Platters. A uh, huge hmm. number of uh, recordings of this song. So it was uh, recorded originally by, uh, it was debuted by uh, uh, Hayes and uh, Nora Bays and Jack Norworth mm-hmm. in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1908. Correct. Um, so yeah, um, Ada Jones there, um, surprisingly enough, is uh, an English singer um, who moved to uh, moved to the USA at a young age, uh, became a big star there, and uh, singing with her was uh, Billy Murray, not not Bill Murray, but Billy Murray, who's uh, one of the most famous singers of this age as well. Right. So uh, all-star all star duo there. Ada Jones, I find her... Uh, uh, she does various different voices, but she always sounds kind of uh, uh, reedy and ancient, whatever she does, <laughs> um, somehow. Um, but let's, let's not, let's not let, let that put us off. Uh, let's listen to another song with uh, Billy Murray and Ada Jones. Uh, this one is not is another Tin Pan Alley classic from this year, not written by uh, Basin Norworth, but, but written by uh, George M. Cohan. And uh, George M. Cohan was uh, one of the biggest writers at this time on Tin Pan Alley. And uh, he wrote, uh, Give My Regards to Broadway, um, You're a Grand Old Flag. <laughs> And uh, he wrote over there during the First World War. But this one's called uh, Pet Names. And uh, it's very catchy. They get names for pet names that are perfectly ridiculous to say. These nicknames are trick names that the lovers call each other every day. There's Piggy and Wiggy and every other sort of foolish name. They're gushy, they're mushy, but the love hates the same. My honey. Don't call me honey love because it rhymes with money love and money's for the mercenary kind. My baby. Don't call me baby love because it rhymes with maybe love and maybe means adult is in your mind. My dearie. Because it rhymes with weary love And weary means unhappy we will be But I must have a pet name Then rhyme a name with love Turtle dove rhymes with love That's the pet name for me They make names for fake names 
that are just as numerous as summer flies. They're wild names, they're child names that your mother used to sing in lullabies. There's Goo Goo, there's Juju. They always get a soft and swampy name. <laughs> they're fine names, they're shine names. But the lovers seem to like them just the same. My cutie. Don't call me cutie love because it rhymes with beauty love. I know I'm not a beauty, that is true. My daisy. Don't call me daisy love because it rhymes with lazy love. And lazy means that soon I tire of you. My darling. Don't call me darling love because... Cause it rhymes with falling love I trust a quarrel there will never be But I must have a prize name Then rhyme a name with prize Angel eyes oh. Rhymes with prize That's the pet name for me My girlie Don't call me girly love Because it rhymes with early love And I would rather sleep and dream my dreamer. Don't call me dreamer, love, because it rhymes with schema, love. And schema means a lover who's untrue. My lily. Don't call me lily, love, because it rhymes with silly, love. And silly means there's something loose up here. But I must have a pet name. Then rhyme a name with dude. Angel food. <laughs> Rhymes with food. That's the pet name for me. My honey. Don't call me honey, love, because it rhymes with money, love, and money's for the mercenary kind. My baby. Don't call me baby, love, because it rhymes with maybe, love, and maybe means a doubt is in your mind. My dearie. Because it rhymes with weary love And weary means unhappy we will be But I must have a pet name Then rhyme a name with hug Kissing bug <laughs> Rhymes with hug That's the pet name for me That was Cohen's Pet Names Performed by Billy Murray and Ada Jones And uh, listening to that I can't help but come up with various other lines that they could do in there. <laughs> yes. Don't call me darling love because it rhymes with carling. Mm. <laughs> um, that's the one I was thinking of as that faded out just then. Um, but yeah, uh, it's a, a George Cohen was a, a, a very uh, important uh, songwriter at this moment. Uh, he wrote half of the hits of the year, it seems, Gosh. on uh, Tim Penale this year. The Man Who Owned Broadway. They seem to have called him. Mm, well, he it was quite an impresario, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's another another song of his. This is a uh, rag babe. Him trying to cash in on the ragtime craze, which uh, was coming to the the end of its first big phase, and uh, it's performed here by the Edwardian Elvis, Arthur Collins. Yeah. 
is a new kind of two-step a-coming around. New kind of two-step a-coming to town. It's Bodie Eva, Papa Dilfa, Jaffa gathers the honey. All of the bodies, certainly funny. New kind of two-step, a crocodile friend. New kind of two-step, dangerous dance. Gather your babe and glide from side to side. Eva, Papa Dilfa, Jaffa, sing big. Eva, Papa Dilfa, Jaffa, swing big. Gather up your honey, do the Michigan glide. Side to the side, dance to the bride. There's a new kind of two-step, a wiggly world. New kind of two-step, a giggly girl. They like the eat a sofa, do for dough, a pickle and two-step. Popular new step, look how to do step. New kind of music, under the flag. New kind of music, Illinois rag. Swinging along with pride, from side to side. Keep a sofa, do for dough, a sing bead. Keep a sofa, do for dough, a swing bead. Gather up the honey, do the Michigan glide. Side to side, death to the bride. Keep a sofa, do for dough, a gold bead. Keep a sofa, do for dough, a old bead. This is Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. We've just heard uh, Rag Babe by Arthur Collins. Another song written by uh, George M. Cohen, who was, uh, like we say, one of the biggest... Uh, <laughs> figures. Biggest figures of this era uh, on the vaudeville stage. Um, let's hear one more uh, <laughs> one more famous vaudeville song from this year. Uh, this is Billy Murray again. He, he gets around a lot. And um, this song was insanely popular i know this because uh when i was listening to this year and the year after there were every other song seems to reference it and it's it's a it's kind of a a, a, a joke song in a sense but uh, a, a, most songs at this point seem to have been uh, based around a joke and it's called i'm afraid to come home in the dark i'm afraid to come home in the dark sung by billy murray edison records <laughs> Jones, he married Mabel, a wise old owl was he. He told his wife he never drank a stronger thing than tea. But after honeymooning, at night he stayed away. And for a week he never got home till the break of day. At last poor Mabel asked the reason why. Said Jones, I'm going to tell the truth or die. Baby dear, listen here, I'm afraid to come home in the dark. Every day the papers say a robbery in the park. 
so I sat alone in the YMCA, singing just like a lark. There's no place like home, but I couldn't come home in the dark. She kissed him good morning to see him she was glad and when she tucked him up in bed he said I guess I'm bad next day the same old story he came home just at dawn but he got sober right away when he found she was gone at noon he heard her slam the garden gate said she to Jonesy is my hat on straight Baby dear, listen here, I'm afraid to come home in the dark. Every day the papers say a robbery in the park. So I sat alone in the CAFE, singing just like a lark. There's no place like home, but I couldn't come home in the dark. Notice every time uh, an impression is done of a drunk person in the first half of the 20th century, uh, they have to hiccup. That's, yes. the, that's the clue that somebody's drunk in a song. <laughs> Just slightly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, a, 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 song, a, a third song from Billy Murray there. We've had quite a few from him today. He was a big star in this year. And a line, just that line, it wasn't the title, I don't think, uh, but There's No Place Like Home has been used recently, you know, in the last sort of 30 years, probably more than uh, in this era, but it dates back to, I think, 1822, the song. Okay. I, yeah, I, I recognised, of course, it's a very famous song, but I didn't think where that's where that's come from. That's, uh, that's uh Where's that from originally? There's no place like home. Is it a hymn? It, no, it was the last line of Home Sweet Home. Okay. And that's, that was its origination. And it um, okay. goes right back to 1822. Okay, well, that's, a, that's older than anything else we've got today. <laughs> so, yeah, easily. Um, one, one more thing from America right now. Uh, this is uh, a song which is still performed every weekend all around America. It's uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Here performed by Edward Meeker. Take me out to the ball game, sung by Edward Meeker, Edison Record. Katie Casey was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad. Just to root for the hometown through every zoo, Katie Blue. On a Saturday, her young beau called to see if she'd like to go to see a show. But Miss Kate said, no, I'll tell you what you can do. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Katie Casey saw all the games, knew the players by their first names, told the umpire he was wrong all along, good and strong. When the score was just two to two, Katie Casey knew what to do, just to cheer up 
the boys she knew. She made the gang sing this song. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Okay, so that was Edward Meeker with Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which was also written in the year 1908. Um, who was this written by? That was composed by uh, Jack Norworth, in fact, who we heard from earlier, and Albert von Tiltzer. That wasn't his real name. Uh, he was apparently Albert Gum. Okay. And I don't know if that was the same family that uh, Judy Garland came from, because she was Frances Ethel Gum, wasn't wow. she? So it's odd. I don't know why nobody liked to have the name Gum in entertainment at this point. It's, uh, <laughs> everyone who was called Gum had to change it. Yes, apparently. So uh, it would yeah. seem. So this is this is still a huge song in America, of course, and it's uh, the uh, anthem of North, North American uh, baseball. And uh, but but neither of its authors had attended a game prior to writing the song. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they just wrote it from their impressions of baseball. And uh, they'll sing it during the middle of the seventh inning of a baseball game in America. I've never been to a baseball game. <laughs> no, I've it seen one. Seems like not, a long uh, time. But not attended. Maybe. But Nor- Norworth, of course, the co-composer of uh, Shannon Harvest Moon, which we heard just now. Mm-hmm. So in the USA at this time, we have uh, an election taking place. Um, we have the end of the era of uh, Teddy Roosevelt um, and his deputy Taft was uh, taking over. And uh, uh, his his uh, opponent in the election was uh, Brian, who uh, had this is third time standing for election, and uh, lost all three times. Um, but they recorded a series of uh, debates on uh, cylinder on Edison cylinder at this point, so we can hear a little bit from one of their debates. Um, let's, let's I wonder if it'll. I wonder if it'll remind us of uh, present day American politics. Uh, I doubt it <laughs> very much indeed. The truth is, we've got to wake up in this country. We are not all there is in the world. There are lots besides us, and there are lots of people besides us that are entitled to our effort and our money and our sacrifice to help them on in the world. No man can study the movement of modern civilization from an impartial standpoint and not realize that Christianity and the spread of Christianity are the only basis for hope of modern civilization in the growth of popular self-government. Imperialism is the policy of an empire, and an empire is a nation composed of different races living under varying forms of government. A republic cannot be an empire, for a republic rests upon the theory that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, and colonialism violates this theory. We do not want the Filipinos for citizens. They cannot, without danger to us, share in the government of our nation. And moreover, we cannot afford to add another race question to the race questions which we already have. In the Philippines, the experiment of a national assembly has justified itself both as an assistance in the government of the island and as an education in the practice of self-government to the people of the island. It is quite unlikely that the people because of the dense ignorance of 90%, will be ready for complete self-government and independence 
before two generations have passed. But the policy of increasing partial self-government step by step as the people shall show themselves fit for it should be continued. The proposition of the democratic platform is to turn over the islands as soon as a stable government is established. This has been established. The proposal then is in effect to turn them over at once. Such action will lead to ultimate chaos in the islands and the progress among the ignorant masses in education and better living will stop. So there was uh, William Bryan and, uh, and uh, William Taft two different Williams who were uh, fighting to be the new president of the USA. And the winner was, of course, Taft. Um, so Brian uh, failed to become president for the third time there, although he seemed to have some interesting ideas. Mm. Um, let's uh, take a, a, a trip further afield around the world. The USA and the UK were not the only places which were making cylinders or records at this time. Um, let's go somewhere else in Europe. This is some Portuguese string music, and I'm going to have difficulty for these <laughs> pronouncing some of these. Right. But this is a Grupo K Larangira, Grupo K Larangira, and uh, Sol Paramor. I don't know if I've got either of those pronunciations right, but it's a uh, mm. mm, uh, pre. So Paramor. Thank you. 
So that was uh, Grupo K Laringera, and uh, I think that was a flute and a guitar and a banjo. Mm. Um, and the, the, it comes from a CD which is called Portuguese String Music, but I suspect that this might be from Brazil. Yes, not sure. Um, Possibly. I've got it here on Columbia Records. Um, interestingly, mm. what else can we find out about it? Um, it, <laughs> it was number 725 on Columbia Records. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> the uh, the catalogue numbers, unfortunately, yes. are not as helpful as they may seem <laughs> with uh, many of these record labels. Yes. They do seem to just invent numbers quite often and they don't seem to be um, in sequential order at all. Mm. Um, but, the, yeah. The title does seem to have been used for quite a number of other songs, but this is the most famous recording of this particular tune. Okay. Um so if anybody if anybody is an expert in either Portuguese music or Brazilian music mm, well it does say that. it's it's in Portuguese okay uh, that it's based on the polka and the writer has one name and that is Calado um let's uh, go across to Asia now in particular India this is from a uh, compilation um which is called uh, uh India at uh, 78 rpm and um yeah, it's. Uh, I I I would like to have a try, of pronouncing the title of this. Um, I I should I should at least have a try. So here we go. It's a Jala Thanaragam instrumental. Okay, that's the first half of the title, and the artist Brahma Sriti Apadurai Iyengar. Sorry to any uh, Indian people who are listening. I, I, I really tried my best. But it's a, an amazing recording all the same. Uh, here we go. <laughs>
Okay, so that was a, a piece of uh, Indian classical music. Um, beautiful piece of classical music, Indian classical music. I won't try to say the name again. Did we find out any more information about this one? No, definitely is 1908. Um, and Glad it's, to hear. Uh, you can obtain it uh, commercially at present. Mm. Uh, so somebody has been collecting and from South India. It's from South India. Okay. Um, so... Uh, Possibly a Tamil kind of... Uh, Maybe. It comes up with a lot of references to Indian Talking Machine. Indian Talking Machine is the name of the compilation. Yeah. Which is from... that's uh, Oh, it's not from India at, at 78 RPM. That's a different compilation. Okay, yes. <laughs> Indian Talking Machine is the one I'm thinking of yep. there. Um, I have various different places I uh, acquire music for this. Um, there are some compilations, like that one, um, also, many different websites. Um, there was one called uh, Russian Records, which I've talked about quite a lot, which has uh, uh, many, many uh, uh, ripped uh, cylinders and discs, which you can see uh, eight people have downloaded it ever. <laughs> and uh, it's such a shame because amazing recordings there. 99% of things on there are terrible opera recordings. Um, this is from an opera. This is an overture from an opera. It's not terrible. It's amazing. Uh, it's the London Palace Orchestra. I've uh, translated the name. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, and uh, it says the Silken Ladder Overture. And uh, the <sighs> Silken Ladder is uh, from Rossini's The Silken Ladder. But I think this is mislabeled. I think this is the Thieving Magpie Overture um, because I'm familiar with it from A Clockwork Orange. Right. Um, so uh, I I don't know. Are you are you familiar with uh, opera to a great extent? Uh, to a certain extent. Okay. Um, let's I, see. Let's see. That's, I, I I'm pretty sure I'm right here.
So that was the London Palace Orchestra. And was that the Silken Ladder or was that the Thieving Magpie? I, do you know, I, my theory is that quite possibly it was Rossini reusing a part of the tune because the earlier part didn't uh, didn't seem quite quite so similar, but certainly when it got to that main theme. That's what I was recognising. Yes. Yeah. So um, interestingly, the, um, the Silken Ladder was 1822. The Thieving Magpie was 1817. Okay, so it may have been. I, I I don't know whether they were in the habit of reusing. I mean, many like composers that. did. You know, if they had a hit okay. tune or melody, they'd bung it in. Okay, <laughs> good it, good classical training. Is that a, a, a high standard that they would follow, or would they uh, would the better composers try not to do that? Well, I, sure. I think. I mean, think about it. Of, of singers in the the twentieth century, you know, they would want to sing their new material that the audience wanted to hear something they already knew uh-huh. and i think <laughs> this certainly did happen in classical music okay. particularly if something had been not so successful right okay you'd reuse a, a melody mm. and the audience would uh, be uh, especially in impressed. an overture because that you know really wakes the crowd up okay an overture should uh you should play uh, snippets of all the different uh, melodies that are going to go on through the rest of the piece. Is that that's right? certainly the theory? Yes. Okay. So um, yeah, perhaps uh, that's that's how it worked. He, the, the, that particular tune was there inside somewhere being reused, mm. so we had to uh, give a hint of it coming up. Please let me know if you know. (laughs) On Cambridge 105 Radio. Okay, you've been listening to uh, Centuries of Sound on Cambridge 105 Radio. I've been James Errington. And I've been Tony Barnfield. Uh, Thank you for joining me today. If you're interested in this uh, project, you can come along to my website, which is at centuriesofsound.com. I have mixes right now for every year until 1918. When this is broadcast, 1919 will mm. be out finally. So uh, slightly into the jazz age, not not completely into the jazz age, but there there or thereabouts. Um, and if you're interested in uh, getting in touch, uh, please feel free to contact me. I'm James at centuriesofsound.com or uh, you can find me on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, all those places. Just search for Centuries of Sound. <laughs> okay. And uh, how can we hear you? Uh, all over the place at the weekend. Uh, Sunday is my day. Of course, you're Saturdays, aren't you? And um, Sunday, one o'clock, around about every week. Easy on the Ear, which is the light music program. Uh, and that's on seven o'clock every other Sunday. So that's uh, tomorrow week. And uh, the classical program. And in fact, uh, Sunday week, I've got three programs. But tomorrow, uh, we're looking actually um, quite interestingly, um, as we've been talking about things here, um, I'm looking at the success of the stage musical from, I suppose, the 1920s, 1930s onwards. Um, 
the success of people like Ivan Novello and Noel Coward through to Cameron Mackintosh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. And now in London, you've got quite a lot of American imports. And that's, of course, what revitalised the British musical in the 1950s when shows like Oklahoma and, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, hit after hit, King and I and so on, um, then got the English writers. um, uh, And there were quite a few musicals in the 1950s uh, that inspired Cameron Mackintosh to actually be a musical impresario. Well, let's go back to the the, the precursors of musicals, I suppose you could say, the works of uh, Stephen Foster. Mm. A a little bit tenuous there, but not really. He was uh, the performing... uh, Stage acts around uh, around the USA in the mid uh, ninety in the mid nineteenth century mm-hmm. would, would play his songs, and uh, his most famous song of all, um, uh, "Old Folks at Home." This is uh, variations on it. It's called "By the Swanee River," and uh, performed by the American Symphony Orchestra. So, thank you very much. Good night.
Thank you for listening to the Centuries of Sound Radio podcast. This one was from November 2019, featured Tony Barnfield and concerned the year 1908. Get these radio podcasts a year early, as well as a host of other benefits, for just $5 per month by coming to patreon.com slash centuries of sound. This show can only survive with your help. Thanks for listening.